0: Hello, and welcome to The Widow Podcast. I am your host, Karen Sutton, The Widow Coach. I am a widow, a mum, a health coach, a life coach, and grief coach. I want to help you see that you really can create something truly meaningful after loss. You have everything you need within you, and I want to help you find it so you can see how capable and amazing you really are, helping you find a more positive way through your grief. And welcome back to another episode of the widow podcast thank you so much for joining me today i am really honored and super thrilled to be talking to a really lovely lady and i know you're going to get an awful lot from this conversation because today i am joined by diane evans wood now diane herself is a podcaster a blogger a mum a wife and a palliative care nurse. Diane is also living with metastatic ovarian cancer and she is here to share her story and talk about her own losses, anticipatory grief and what she desires for her son and her husband after she has gone. So Diane, there's a lot there, isn't there to talk about, <laughs> but thank you so much. I have to say you you got in touch with me, didn't you, on, mm-hmm. on Instagram because you've been listening to the podcasts and you have been following me. And we kind of got chatting a bit. And I, I did think at the time, because I, I knew you were living with, you, you know, the metastatic ovarian mm. cancer. And I wanted to kind of reach out to you and ask you to come on. But I, I was like, oh, I, I don't want to put her in a position. Mm. <laughs> but, she but, but then amazingly, you kind of reached out to me and, and said, you know, I'd really like to come and be a guest and, and share my story from... I guess the other side of, of the table, isn't it? You, you know no. that that you yeah. said, you know, I know that at some point my husband is going to become a widower, mm. and you know, you wanted to share your side of the story, I suppose, and and how you feel in this process and and what you want for them moving on. So I was I was absolutely amazed, and I think you were mm. so brave and so courageous to to come on and do this, and I know you have your own podcast. Um, mm. Which is brilliant, and and that's um that is that's called living with ovarian cancer podcast, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. very different being the guest. That's <laughs> it. That's it, and that's why I thought, <laughs> oh wow, you're amazing. You know, you really are amazing. Sure, thank so thank you. you, thank you for for joining us and and coming and sharing your time and and your thoughts and and your experiences with us. I I know this is going to be, you know, really helpful I think to a lot of people that have have lost loved ones um, through an illness so welcome I'm just really grateful that
1: I've got this opportunity to be able to to talk about our experiences if you like Mm -hmm. um I also feel very strongly that as a palliative care clinical nurse specialist it's really important that I actually walk the talk as well because Mm. over all those years of of nursing and especially with specializing in palliative care having those very very poignant and very important conversations was an everyday part of my life and Mm. I just feel so hypocritical if I didn't do that myself and unfortunately I find myself in that situation now where I'm in the palliative phase of of my disease. Um, And I know lots of people say, but you don't look ill, you know, and you look so well. But, you know, uh, looking on the screen, what you see is only a little part um, Mm. of of my life, our Mm. lives. Mm. Um, And yeah, I do look well because makeup and a ring light um with a a soft focus on me makes me look very well
0: (laughs) do you know what and I think that's such a good point isn't it you you know I think we're all very quick to look at someone and say you look really well you know and and there might underneath be all you know physical mental anguishes going on um that we know nothing about and you can't judge someone's reality on their appearance you just can't we've no no idea and you know we all want to look well don't we um because it yeah. makes us feel better, I think, as, as well, when we make that bit of effort. But like you say, to to kind of judge our reality on on how we show up in in our day to day life isn't always a true reflection That's of that. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So t- just you know to give the the listeners a little bit of background Diane just you know how you you know you've got to this place in your life how long you've been living with with the diagnosis that you've Mm. currently got and what led you to I guess want to to share your story to support others um through your your own podcast and your own blogs Mm. okay Um, well we'd need to go right back to
1: 2013 actually which was one hell of a year um, I was top of my game in, in my career, palliative care, CNS, um, loving my work, working full time. My son at home, he was at college and um, yeah, having I was living in the place Glastonbury, which was really my, my spiritual town. That's where I wanted to live. I'd always wanted to live there. And then I met Simon. You know, um, I, I can't believe our luck that we we met through mutual friends, and yeah, we 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 sort of hit it off so quickly. Um, we had an absolute blast of a year in 2013. Music festivals, um, concerts, visiting all sorts of places, exploring places that we wanted to be. Um, and yeah it was a wonderful wonderful year and you can imagine you know we were so much in love that that first year the first throes of passion it was amazing and then in the, that was in the march now in the, in the december of that same year i suddenly woke up with a a sudden pain and that pain was lower abdom- abdominals, um, bladder area, but it was radiating into my back and it was so painful. It kept me awake all day long. Um, so I, I went to see my GP the next day knowing that something wasn't quite right. Um, and she said, Oh, it's probably just the menopause. you probably perimenopausal. Now, I think everybody should know the, the signs and symptoms of menopause, but I know that that's not one of them. So I, she could tell I wasn't very happy, so she said, well, I'll, I'll do some tests. So I had a blood test done, which came back, and the CA125 was raised. Now, that's a protein that's present often with ovarian cancer, so obviously my alarm bells were going. And because that was raised, she ordered a, an ultrasound scan, which took place in the January, and that showed an that showed an ovarian cyst. So I was referred then to the to a, a gynecologist. Quite it was a fast track system because of the CA one two five being raised, and he said, "Well, I don't think there's anything to worry about. It's a very small cyst." And he did what they call um, a score, which is, um, oh, i trying to remember um, what it was called now, but it, it was, it was a, a, a score that tells you whether there's a risk of um, ovarian cancer or malignancy. It, it's malignancy index score so the risk of malignancy index score I should say so an RMI that's come to me now is it chemo brain <laughs> so that came back and the the risk of ovarian cancer was very very low so and so, you wrote the score down in my medical records and circled it a couple of times did a couple of bull stops as if to labor that point no you're nothing to worry about so he could see I was worried. So he thought, "Well, uh, what would you like me to do? Would you like me to just remove it?" So I, I wanted it removing. So in the February of twenty, um, yeah, it was twenty fourteen. It would have been by then. I went and had a laparoscopy, so an exploratory laparoscopy, but also to remove the cyst. And. I was kept in overnight and when it was a day case, it was meant to be a very simple operation. So I kind of knew something wasn't quite right. Um, And he told me it was cancer. So that was quite a surreal moment, actually. The way that you're told the curtains are pulled around you and everybody else in the ward can hear um, what's said. And yeah, then the curtains go back and everybody's kind of not looking at you. Yeah, so it was a very surreal moment that was. I was surprised, um, yet not surprised. Um, so I'd been feeling very tired. And in hindsight, on reflection, I'd been feeling very bloated, getting bouts of constipation, and then, of course, with this sudden pain. So yeah, the memory of that day, it always sticks in my mind, actually. It was a beautiful day. Um my sister and my mum came to pick me up from the hospital. My sister was driving and um, it's quite bizarre. And I looked at her and uh, I said, isn't it a lovely day to be told you've got cancer? Sunshine in blue sky. And we just couldn't stop laughing. Humour plays a big part in all of this coping, I think. And my poor mum in the back of the car crying her eyes out, saying, well, what are you laughing about? she she found it very very difficult um so there's me and my sister laughing giggling all the way home but i think that was just masking the the shock to be honest so i was referred to a, a gynae oncology um surgeon so in april 2014 i had quite major surgery they did a hysterectomy took the rest of the rest of what was left of my one ovary and the other ovary away um took away the omen the omentum which is like an apron of fat that covers the the whole of the um, abdominal cavity to protect it and he was telling me that i've got stage three ovarian cancer and that i'd need chemotherapy afterwards so that that actually was quite difficult because I got very very long dreadlocks at the time. It took me ages to get them, and it was part of my image, mm-hmm. and I I just adored them. You know, going to the festivals, I felt like I really fitted in, and so I was going to lose those. Um, and then after the surgery, I had quite a bad time, Karen. Um, I had a hemorrhage, and it it was not really expected because I was doing really well started to bleed um vaginally and then the first bleed I went to hospital they sent me home it stopped I stopped bleeding but the second one was pretty significant and I had to have counseling because of that because I I had PTSD because Mm -hmm. of the 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 shock and the horror of what happened but it was like the life force was just draining from me Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember being in the ambulance and the blue light going. And then and I don't remember anything very much after that. Mm. The I woke up in recess with the doctor, several doctors trying to get a cannula in. And then I was frightened. I was quite peaceful in the ambulance, but then I was frightened because this is very real. Um, I had to try and co- get some contact with my mum. The nurses were brilliant in recess because all the blood on the floor at home in the bathroom was still going to be there that because that morning I'd left, it was just all there. The ambulance men had carted me away and all the blood was still there. And my son would have got home from college to find that. So my poor mum went over and cleaned all that up. So she, again, you know, another sort of horrific situation for her to Mm -hmm. be in. Um, Yeah, I just remembered something, actually, that Luna's just caught my eye, the cat, my cat on the bed. When I was in the bathroom, sat on the toilet waiting for the ambulance to come with all this blood draining from me and blood all over the bathroom floor. And Luna kept coming in and padding through (laughs) and the ambulance men had to keep on picking her up. She's hissing like a good one, you know. So, But yeah, she was obviously picking up on the vibes that things um, weren't Uh great. They're so they're so intuitive, aren't they? <laughs> they are, aren't they? Animals, they're they're wonderful. Mm. Then I jump ahead, then the following month, in it would have been in May. I'm thinking I'm going to have chemotherapy, and I'd be told I've got high-grade serous ovarian cancer. And then everything changed. All of a sudden, the pathology had come back, and I'd got a rare disease called borderline ovarian tumours. Now, it's difficult to describe what that is, but it's it's not exactly cancer, but it's not not cancer either. So the cells are slower growing and they appear to be abnormal like cancer, but not full-blown malignancy. And that was really weird because suddenly I've gone from having full-blown cancer to something that's less serious. I mean, great that I hadn't, but I, I got all that trauma. I'd been through all that horrific stuff. And because it wasn't cancer, I found that people, they thought, well, it's not serious. You should be really glad it's not cancer. And people fell by the wayside. I didn't get the same support as if it was cancer. Um, So I was left very much on my own, really. I was still going back to the oncologist every three months. And in September of that year, um, I had the surgery in the April and then in the September, I went back to work. But that even that was very different. I went back on a phased return, were, were brilliant. Um, and they accommodated what I needed. And I soon got back to visiting patients again. But I went back and I was changed. Um, Changed because I'd been through so much. Everybody else seemed the same, but I had changed so much after what I'd been through, like I say. And Mm. it changed me as a nurse as well. It made me view patients and what they'd been through very differently. I went back into professional mode um, and I, I was so glad to be back to some kind of normality, although it was a new normal for me because obviously I'd been through hysterectomy. I was in surgical menopause. So to go from not menopause to full-blown menopause, wow, that is something else. Um, at that point I had some HRT as well to help me because the drenching sweats that I had were were just um, well debilitating and so embarrassing sat there with in front of GPs male GPs in meetings and then I suddenly get these hot flushes and I was you know sat in a pool of sweat so yeah it was really hard what that was Mm. but yeah the patient's again, kept me going. I learned so much from them. I saw them in a different light. I knew what it was like to be told you've got cancer, to be waiting for investigations and results. That waiting game is a nightmare. Mm -hmm. But in July of 2015, the following year, I started to have symptoms again. And I told my my gynae oncologist when I went for a routine appointment, he said, I don't think there's anything to worry about, but we'll do a CT scan anyway, just for reassurance. He said he didn't think it would be cancer, but they found on there what looked like a lymph node, but again, reassured that it wasn't cancer. So in the November, they removed the lymph node. And the surgeon rang my husband after the surgery that evening and said that that lymph node was actually cancer. My borderline ovarian tumours had developed into full blown low grade serous ovarian cancer. Now, bear in mind that I had thought that, that that borderline disease wouldn't have ever progressed because that's what I was told. It's rare and not much was known about it, as with low grade. So yeah, told I'd got cancer. I remember getting home from that surgery. My mom was; she came and stayed with me to to help look after me because I, you know, I was quite poorly um, getting over that surgery mentally and physically. But telling my son that I'd got cancer um, the second time that was worse. I, to hear my my son he. Can't remember how old he would have been, eighteen, sobbing in his bedroom. Uh, my heart, my heartbroken mum, uh, wanting this to be her and not me. Um, all that bargaining that you go through, you know, take me, don't, don't take her. And my dad on the phone, trying to control his voice. Um, I could tell that he was trying not to cry very emotional time and I remember feeling that sense of that guilt um, because as cancer patients a person with the cancer we cause so much pain but then from the December to the May uh, December 2015 to May 2016 I had six cycles of chemotherapy and I lost my beautiful dreadlocks (laughs) cut them all off but my the the hair started to come out on Boxing Day. And by New Year's Eve, it was quite painful. The, the hair follicles hurt. It's quite strange. And Simon, he he shaved my head for me. And at the same time, he shaved his own. Oh, my <laughs> um, it was a very, very tender moment, to be honest. But I was in and out of hospital with chemotherapy with low white blood cells and And just the general side effects, it really floored me. But I couldn't cope at home on my own because my son was living his life. He's got his own issues, his mental health issues. And I don't think he was coping great with what was happening with me. Um, My family lived in Dorset, me being in Somerset, they were in Dorset and some of my family up north, which my sister in Dorset couldn't just drop everything to keep coming because she was working um, in in, with children in care she just couldn't drop everything to come and look after me so I temporarily moved to the new forest um, which is where I am now and to the house that Simon and I had purchased because I actually had a critical illness plan which I cashed in and we bought this house together then. Um, and so luckily, you know we we'd got this place, but I didn't anticipate that I'd be moving so quickly. So yeah, I left Sam behind um, and looking after the, the cat and <laughs> and looking after the the house. But uh, it was rent. the house in Glastonbury was rented. Um, and still paying the rent on it obviously because it was his home intending to go back and then go back to work um, and all the rest of it but I never really recovered um, I never went it took me a long long time to recover and I'd been off probably a year and work needed me to go back to go back to my job you know with that with a role like that it's highly specialized professional work they needed me to go back so my sick pay ran out so I had decisions to make I wasn't ready to go back to work so what I did was I took early ill health retirement but the money didn't come through quickly enough so obviously my sick pay finished but my pension took a few months to come through so I get, I ended up having to give up the home that we were in and my son then he he rented a small flat in Glastonbury um, yeah so I wasn't ready for that um, yeah, the, the feeling of leaving him behind um, yeah it, Sam and I had been, uh, we've always been very very close because he, he, being a single parent for many many years it was just me and Sam and so to leaving behind in Glastonbury breaks my heart even now and there's never never a day that goes by when I don't think I just wish that I could be there but I'm not I'm here so I retired um And I did go back to work, but in a consultancy role for a local hospice. So I was seeing patients um, in outpatients, which was was really lovely um, to be getting back to. It was just one day a week. And then November 2017, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, totally unrelated to ovarian cancer. Um, so I'm BRCA negative, which is, um, a genetic,
0: um,
1: what, what do you call it? Yeah. Malformation. That's the only word I can think. Chemo brain again. Yeah. So, um, I, a mutation, that's the word. It always comes to me in the end, Karen, uh, it might be hours later, but yeah, I'm BRCA negative. So, um, I, 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 I genetically. I, that wasn't the reason why I had um, breast cancer. So, yeah, ended up having to go through all of the treatment re- regarding that. Um, I went through wide local inc- incision. So in effect, a lumpectomy, they just took the lump out. I've got big boobs anyway, so I didn't really notice very much um, that it was gone. And then it was followed by several weeks of radiotherapy, which pretty much sailed through. After going through ovarian cancer, I think that experience with the breast cancer didn't faze me so much. But sadly, after all that, I felt like it was time to give up nursing because having two cancers really wasn't appropriate to be going back to work with um, such poorly patients. So I set about continuing a role in a voluntary capacity, I suppose. Um, by doing other things like the podcast and blogging um, and supporting other women with ovarian cancer in Facebook support groups. And I set up, um, during lockdown, the beauty of discovering Zoom was that I set up a Southampton ovarian cancer support group because although Southampton's a city, we didn't have um, an ovarian cancer support group, so I set that up. Um, so, which is still running really well. But since those days of having, um, well, uh, further, I've had further chemotherapy jumping through the hoops to, to access other treatments. You see, in, in the UK, we've got the NICE guidance and that sort of depicts on what sort of treatments that we have. And I had to have more chemotherapy to be able to access further treatment. And so I had more chemo, but I didn't keep I didn't cope very well with that. And in any case, my cancer doesn't respond very well to chemo, and it's very hard to put something so toxic into your body when you know it's going to be doing very little. And I've had several recurrences over the years, and I've pretty much exhausted what's available to me and my disease now is widespread throughout my abdomen it's spread into my chest so I've got metastatic ovarian cancer like you've introduced me as having and so at the moment I'm not taking any treatment but the, the cancer markers are going up and up and up but symptomatically I'm not too bad so I'm holding off going back on to which is a targeted therapy Um, I'm holding off on going back to that because once I've exhausted that option, I've got nothing else left. So I'm holding off until I've got more symptoms. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm in the palliative phase, which um, we're just in my professional experience. People get very, very confused about all these um, words, don't they? um Mm -hmm. you know that terminology (laughs) but palliative care and hospice care in the uk are are the same thing in effect um Mm -hmm. specialist palliative care Um, and it's for people that have got progressive life-limiting illnesses like cancer or multiple sclerosis or motor neuron disease that sort of thing Mm -hmm. um but the disease might be able to be treated but not cured um so that's what palliative care is. And then people will often think that hospice care is end of life care, but that's actually the last few days or last weeks of somebody's life. Whereas with the palliative phase, you can live for a very long time these days in, in palliative care because the treatments are so good.
0: Mm.
1: So, from my story, you can probably pick up there are so many lost situations, aren't there? Um, for me and my loved ones, and, yeah, I find myself now having time to plan ahead um, and reflect on everything that I've gone through. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my story up till now.
0: I you, you know, I think, Diane, thank you for sharing that. And I think that the, you. your ability to share your story so well, so calmly, um, you know, you articulate it in 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 such a a brave way and you know I know when we spoke last time your your training your years of of the doing the job that you do there's almost that element that you can talk about it in a way that you're almost talking about somebody else yes, exactly. um, mm-hmm. and and that's a, a coping mechanism yeah. for you and yeah. you know and I think that's that's brilliant isn't it because it, yeah. it it then allows you to to do this and to to do your podcast and, and write your blogs yeah. and, and create the support groups um because you know it must be so difficult to 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 tell that story and and relate it as as your own
1: yeah, um, yeah it is yeah. i sometimes i think it's a good thing yeah. i I almost, uh, my oncologist always smiles because I, I talk as if I'm talking to her about another patient, but yeah. I'm talking about me. Yeah. And occasionally it really hits me um, and I take a nosedive, um, you know, but it's a coping, it is definitely like say, a coping strategy. And I'm, I'm very lucky that I've had so much experience with palliative care because it has meant that It has not been the scary experience that so many other patients might feel that it is. Mm. Everything is familiar to me, going into the hospital, the investigations, all the the medical jargon. It's all familiar to me. It's everyday stuff to me. And so it naturally I just fell into that pattern of, oh, well, I'm talking about me, but I, I am that patient now. Yeah. Whether that continues, I don't mm.
0: know. Well, I'm sure you have your moments where, you know, like you say, that you're able to almost remove yourself from it and and talk about it in a professional kind of manner almost. Mm -hmm. But then in the moments where it does get you and the reality of of your situation and it being you and those feelings, those emotions come to the surface. How do you deal with those, Diane? What do you do Mm -hmm. for you? I mean, are you able to talk to your, your family and friends about how you truly feel or is that how mm. you know you define the support groups because I think you know you touched on at the beginning of your story that the guilt you feel for causing yeah. the pain so I'm I'm assuming and you shouldn't assume um that is quite difficult for you to to truly share what's going on for you with those you yeah. love because it must be so hard for them to hear it
1: yeah, I'm too busy supporting every other person. Um, I've always been like ever the nurse, even from a child, I've always been that person. Mm. I, I do talk, I do talk to my family, but it is very difficult for them, I think, um, because obviously all of this is, is something that I'm used to talking about, but for them it's not. Mm. This is all very new. Mm. And we're all going through different feelings as well, our own grief, because what we're going through and we've spoken about this is anticipatory grief Mm. and anticipatory grief as in um, anticipating the death of somebody. And of course, I'm still alive and I've still got those. I'm going through that grief as well in a different way. So Mm. simultaneously, we're going through grief. Um, and I I'm used to talking about all of this and and in my head I've got I have some the headings that sort of tell me um what I need to say about anticipatory grief and in part and and all of these headings if you look at phases of grief they're they're almost the same Mm. so like with disbelief um that it's not happening that denial kind of thing Mm -hmm. it felt like that to begin with um but it it's not so much now I've had I mean obviously I've had this since um 2014 so I've had time to come to terms with it all but with the knowledge from my career I've had a bit of a head start really to be able to I know the drill so Mm -hmm. I've got over that that phase now I know that I probably will revisit that because we know that grief's not linear. It's there. It's cyclical. You go around in circles, really. Don't be revisiting Mm. different phases of of grief. Mm. Um, But the guilt—the guilt is a biggie. Um, It consumes me at times, um, particularly because Simon and I and I had so little time without cancer. And that really saddens me. We had so many plans, dreams, and I sometimes I wonder whether Simon resents me. Am I holding him back? Am I stopping from having him, from him having a fulfilling life? Um, and I, I just feel so guilty at times that my health has changed and our lives so drastically, and even from everyday stuff like me not having the energy to do things around the house to intimacy because of all the surgery and everything that I've had or the treatment, Mm -hmm. even that's not the same anymore. Um, But it's changed the dynamic of our relationship from how it used to be because I used, I worked full time. I was a strong woman, still am, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. But I had a responsible job. I felt like I had a purpose in life. I was vibrant and I was full of optimism. And now I feel like I'm just a a shadow of myself. And that's my my feeling. I'm not saying that that's real. That's that's how I feel. And Simon would probably say something very different. Um, And I'm not the only one to say this, what I'm going to say. But there are times when I've thought, and I've said this to Simon, that perhaps he should find somebody else and um i've spoken to plenty of other women who have said the same to their husband because it it's su- such a drastic change because trying it, it's really hard to try and carry on as normal when cancer's there lurking on the sidelines and particularly when you're living with cancer for such a long time you know it, 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 he's living with it, it as well so Obviously, he always says no. Of course, I'm never going to go meet anybody else. Um, And he married me knowing that I'd got cancer. We had a beautiful woodland wedding. So, yeah.
0: And I look... Go on.
1: I was going to say, um, I think I've said this to you when we spoke before, but it's really strange. I look around and I wonder if certain women in our lives, I look and think... Will they be the the one that Simon chooses? You know, because it'd be quite. In my opinion, it will be quite a catch for someone when I'm gone. So, I talk quite openly, and I'll say, oh, I wonder if she'll be the one but yeah no would you no, would you but...
0: quite like because i do know i do know of of widows and widowers that have obviously you know lost their person mm. and then you know formed a relationship through that loss with with a close friend of of their late husband or wife mm. and and there's guilt in that for them afterwards yeah. or what but you know for you when you obviously you're looking around at at, at this and and having these thoughts would you does that bring you some comfort, almost? Would yeah. would that be something that you you would quite like to see if you, if you get to see what ca- happens after after you've gone, um, because you know them and you feel like there's that connection? Yeah. Um.
1: There are there are moments that I'm thinking, I, I hate the thought of him being with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but actually, it does bring me some comfort. Life's. Uh, Life's the living um, and I yeah Simon gets very upset when we talk about it. He can't imagine being with anybody else because it's not like being it's not been like being divorced or yeah. separated. Nobody fell out of love with anyone. And he can't believe that he'll be able to be with somebody else without feeling disloyal or unfaithful Mm. to me. Mm. So I do try to reassure him that it would bring me comfort. It would bring me joy to know that he will be able to continue and live his life. Um, I can't imagine the loneliness that he would feel without moving on and finding somebody else, but it's very hard for him to imagine that. Um,
0: it, it must be the most difficult conversation mm-hmm. to have, and and one, I mean, I have to say, my husband and I did talk about what would happen if if one of us died, and we both kind of said, you, you know, well, you know, I'd like you to to move on and find that, but we weren't having that conversation amongst the the knowledge of knowing it was going to become a reality. You, you know, it was mm-hmm. just a conversation that you have at times just randomly, yeah. but you know and obviously he died suddenly so we we didn't get to have all these conversations but you know to have that conversation when you know it it's going to become a reality at some point that's very different isn't it Mm. it's a very different and you're 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 both coming at it from very different angles you what you want to know that he's going to be okay he can't imagine life without you in it and probably doesn't want to have the conversation so you're both coming from very different angles and and does that do you ever clash on it? Are there, are there things sometimes that you want to talk about that he doesn't and it causes a, a frustration, a disconnect?
1: Um not in that not with that, I don't think. Um I think he I think he probably deep down appreciates what I'm trying to do when I'm encouraging him. Um and For example, I'm often saying to him, uh, I'm encouraging him to do stuff on his own um, because I, I don't have the energy to do everything, you see, so anymore. But I don't want him to miss out on fun opportunities. And plus, you know, he's creating memories that don't involve me, which I think is really good for him. So, but he finds that very difficult. He, he that makes him feel guilty then that he's carrying on normal life um, mm. without me. But it's all it is about communication and mm. definitely the key. But we don't clash on that really um,
0: at all. Yeah, because uh, it it must be difficult. It must be so difficult to have these these conversations. Yeah. But you know, I, I know when we spoke before, um, we talked about you know I'd obviously done David Kessler's grief educators yeah. program, and and he did talk in that about you know the more meaningful the death, the more yeah. meaningful the grief. Yeah. And you know, from from talking to you, I get a real sense that you are working towards making your 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 death as as meaningful as possible yeah. to support you know your your loved ones around you so that you know they can find a, a, a I guess a more meaningful way through through their grief yeah. um, which is very brave and, and very courageous it really is and, and such such a wonderful thing to do your loved ones, but must be so incredibly hard to do as well.
1: I find myself trying to protect people a lot as well. Um mm. there are things that maybe I, you know, I, I feel that I want to talk about more at length, but um about how I'm feeling, but I try I tend not to. Um it's the only I mean talk when we think about do we clash The the one thing I think that perhaps we do clash with occasionally is that if I I talk to Simon about um, how I'm feeling, you know, and he'll try and he loves me, so he wants to make things right. So he'll say, well, what about this, this or this? And I'll say, yeah, but I can't, or I put this and put that in reply. And so he feels like he can't really do any rights and that's I try not to disempower him but it's very difficult because then if I don't take his advice um he's trying to fix things it just makes him feel like you know he can't do anything right you can't say anything right you can't powerless kind Mm, of thing and so sometimes you know um he'll oh well (laughs) not stroppy as such but yeah, he, we do. We just don't speak about it. Then the communications cut off, um, and that's
0: it. Do you know what? There's a real connection, isn't there, between a lot of what you're saying? I can so resonate with in terms of being a griever of, of a person that's lost a loved one, you know, like all the, the secondary losses, that feeling of, of being a burden and not wanting to put think pain on, on people, um, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to really explain how you're feeling to people, but you don't feel like you can. Also that feeling of wanting to talk to someone, but then trying to, to fix you and find solutions. Of course they do because they, they, they want to help you. They want to make it better, but sometimes you just want someone to listen and to hold you and kind of say I'm here but that's so hard to do when you love someone so dearly isn't it you you kind of just want it all to go away you want to feel like you've got something to offer that's going to help the situation and it's just you can really see you know I I know that you know when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did her extensive research on on grief and loss and you know her five stages were developed weren't Mm -hmm. they with the terminally ill and later on went on to discover actually there's a lot of of that that is similar to those that are grieving the loss of a loved one and and you know talking to you I can really feel that I can really feel that obviously coming from very different angles yeah Um, but that that loss that grief it's it, it has so many similarities doesn't it yeah. and it pulls in all those different directions mm-hmm. and you feel all those things but for different reasons different experiences yeah.
1: i find myself going through quite long periods of depression um you know feeling hopeless what's the point um and then I describe it. This, these are the things that I find difficult to talk about with Simon, really, or any of my loved ones, my friends, because it's just something so personal. But it's an existential crisis is that what's the meaning in life, you know? Um, what, what's the point? Um, and I can't, there's so much loss that's happened mm-hmm. that I, I just find it very difficult to move forward um i find nature very healing in that respect Mm. and i know you'll relate to that because you're much the same as me very very Um, much so nature nature there's a sense of permanence about nature isn't there life goes on you know you think about Mm. the the leaves of the trees um come off in Mm. in the autumn and then we've got the beauty and there's beauty in that beauty in in winter then you've got the spring and the summer and there's new life there's a it, it, there's a cycle of death and rebirth all the time with nature and that's what's comforting to me is that I know that life will go on mm-hmm. I know life will always be there um, mm-hmm. the seasons will come and go and I and each season that comes I always think Oh, I hope I see next spring, you know, but at one point I won't, you know, Mm. but it's nature does help me a lot. And I I do spend, I I do follow a a nature based spiritual path anyway. So nature's very, features very importantly in our lives. Mm. Um, Mm. But yeah, I I do. And I also get very low when I imagine what it's going to be like for Simon um, coming home after work to an empty house and eating alone and and, you know I sit there and I imagine what that's going to be like for him and I probably overthink things and trying to um, think ahead too much in some ways and yeah I feel quite broken as well when I think about what that's going to be like for my son because he still needs me at the moment because of his own mental health issues he's not fully independent and i just really pray that he will be more settled before i die mm. um losing your mom at such a young age is going to be very difficult for him and i just mm. feel so upset and it makes me feel very low about my mom as well um i mean she's older and she doesn't need this my head's so full of grief my own grief and the anticipated grief and bereavement for my loved ones so mm. it's it's just really hard mm-hmm. and then one of the other things and you probably know that with when people are dying they there are certain things they want to put in place and one of them is making amends with people um and I saw that a lot with patients, really. They wanted to release that regret and that sorrow and they wanted to forgive and wanted other, others to forgive them and so on. It's sort of making things right. And I'm finding that really difficult because I tried to build a bridge with someone who is very important in my life. And she's completely blanked me on it I'm just she, she stopped me from being able to put things right even though she knows how ill I am and I've had a lot of counselling over that Karen um I I do really uh, if I think too much about it I do struggle but I've had to accept on reflection and with the counselling that this this is really a reflection of her own headspace and not mine. It's Mm -hmm. something that I can't, there's nothing I can do about it. But her motives must serve her in whatever way that might be. I wish that we could mend the rift, but I think I've had to accept that that's not going to happen. yeah, which is very difficult, and I remember that happening with patients at times, and how devastated they were, um, because when when you're dying, there's a last chance to put things right, and when somebody disallows that, then that's that's really very very hurtful, and it's complicated, I know, but I do find that difficult. Mm. I feel quite angry at times and resentful, and. Um, Although much of that, if that's passed, I've pretty much accepted and come to terms with things really. But a lot of that's, a lot of the anger is about the fact that I can't do things that I want to do. Um, living with that uncertainty means that we can't make plans. We, we have to live from one month to the next, um, knowing that we can't plan too far ahead with holidays. We, there's nothing certain. I know life's not certain really, but cancer just really takes over. And I've got that acceptance now of this situation to a certain degree as well. Like I've said before, um, I'm just grateful that I've got to this age and see my son grow up to the, the age of the years. And I've experienced so much. Um, but it's because of that acceptance that it's made, it's enabled me, empowered me to be able to put plans into place. Um. Planning ahead is really important. They're conversations, difficult conversations that I think that everybody should have. That are impossible at times, but so important. And I think perhaps do help in after somebody's lost a loved one in their bereavement. Um, I've had so many of these conversations with patients before, so it's not easy for for my loved ones. An example is that um, I I told you this when we spoke before, but I requested a do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation, so DNAR, um, when my disease first spread to my chest. And although I talked it through with Simon and my loved ones regarding what that means, they were horrified. Um, I mean, what it really means is that if my if my heart stops, if I collapse It just means that they won't restart my heart or breathing. Um, They will allow a natural death. It's not that paramedics or doctors won't do anything. They will do everything they possibly can to to provide comfort and allow a dignified and graceful death. The only difference is that they just allow death to happen naturally. They just don't use all the equipment and all the stuff restarting the heart but Simon found that very difficult he said I don't think that I can do that if you collapsed he said I think I'd have to do something because he's trained in first aid mm. so I've had to accept that yes okay that's something he would have to do I probably would know very little about it um, but yeah hopefully that scenario won't come into play But that was a very difficult situation, I think, a a conversation for us to have. I've written down about my funeral and what I'd like. What I'd really like is a, a huge Viking funeral with a funeral pyre. But they don't allow that Karen do Do they they (laughs) (laughs) so I've had to opt for a different a a simple nature-based funeral yeah and I've got the money to pay for it so it's not a financial burden on my loved ones and because funerals are so expensive these days aren't they so expensive Um, yes written down what I want um music wise and um who I'd like to have the funeral right but to perform the funeral right but everything's i think um it's fluid i think i think that if simon wanted something else i wouldn't be upset about that yeah, i've already yeah. started gifting possessions to people as well um things that i want people to have especially i'm giving those and i'm making a list of things that i want what i want people to have so it makes it easier for simon yeah so anticipatory grief is hard but it's also equally wonderful in providing an opportunity to um to do all the things and say the things that you want
0: mm, yeah that that is it's a double edged sword isn't it i think mm. um for want of a better expression because you you know you're able to make those plans and and you know voice the the, the choices and decisions and 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 have those conversations i suppose and you know i am sorry about your friend and and wanting to reach out and make peace yeah. that that must be incredibly hurtful and, and frustrating. And yeah. y- like you say, it's, you know, we have to understand in life, don't we, that we can't control other people and their choices and their yeah. reactions. But sometimes it can definitely feel very personal. And we can't make sense of things sometimes. No. No. And it, it's living with things like that, isn't it? And and knowing that you're not going to get an opportunity further down the line to to to, you know, make that Amends because um, we always like to think we've got time and in the future and all that stuff that we we tell ourselves. But yeah. when you're faced with the reality that that's not, you know, a, a long term plan for you, that's really difficult. Yeah. um And you know, like having having those conversations, they are such. So, I totally agree with you. You know, like, talking to people about your death, your wishes, um what you want after you've gone. Um, I think that I believe that they are truly important conversations mm-hmm. for us all to have, whether whether we're facing that imminently or not, because exactly to your point, who knows when our, our time is going to come? You know, we, we don't know. And I think it really does help those left behind to to understand a little bit more about what your yeah. wishes would be. And, you, you know, in terms of the, you know attempting resuscitation i understand that and i think you yeah. know working in the medical world you know that cpr is is rarely successful yeah um, be
1: futile in my situation by yeah. then when that happens it would
0: just mm. be wrong yeah yeah, yeah. but that's so hard when you're the one left behind because you don't you know death is so final and it's mm. it i i do not i do, i find it so strange because it's it's, it's a natural part of life isn't it it's we we live and we die and exactly to your point you know we go out we look around the world we look in nature we look at all things that live they die you know yes. and every year we go through the cycle of the seasons and things die and then they come to life again and 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 that is so representative of of life isn't it but mm-hmm. yet yeah, it's so hard for us to comprehend and I mm-hmm. I don't understand why our human brains I mean, I do understand because it's love. And when yeah. you love someone and they die, it's it's incredibly painful. But then there's that side of me that goes, why are we not designed better to deal with yeah. it? Because yeah. it's it's inevitable. It's the only thing in life we can be certain of
1: yeah we tactile. prepare for birth don't we yes birthing we plans why not prepare for something else that's very certain you know, death yeah. is very much a part of of life I feel it is. it's you know it, we can't live forever obviously it's very sad when some I, I, I'm 58 now and so I've I feel very lucky to have reached the age that I have, but I know plenty of younger women, which is very different. I feel, but at my age, um, I'm not. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of talking about death because that's something that I. I've seen plenty of people die or be close to death, and so I've got no fear of dying, and I think that's helped me a lot. Um, Obviously, the complications of the cancer are not so nice, and I wish I didn't know about those. But the body itself knows how to die naturally, and so we just have to trust in the process. And I, you know, I—the only—it's the leaving people behind um, that that gets me. Um, oh. To never be able to hear the voices that you you love again is very painful. So I just don't take it for granted, you know, that the like the voice, the gentle voice of Simon when he he tells me that he loves me, and when I'm on the phone to Sam, my son, at night, and he'll say, "Oh, good night then, Mum. Love you." Mm. Um. I can't imagine um. Not hearing those voices again, and you know the grandchildren saying "Should we go and feed the badgers nana um that, that that gets me i talk so openly about everything but it's i get that pain in my throat um and i i don't think i ever i'm, I'm never able to say the about how i feel about leaving everybody behind without getting without getting upset Death itself isn't scary to me, but leaving everybody behind is, and that's the price that you pay for love, isn't it? Mm. Although I don't, I, I think humans humans are a bundle of energy. We energetically everything that live is living has energy. Electrical impulses, energy, and so I believe that this bundle of energy goes back into the universe and so i'll still the essence of me will live on i still believe that i'll still be around my body will go back to the the earth the nature and that that actually is a comfort to me because nature is so beautiful I, that's what i i'm not that doesn't phase me um and i I believe that obviously, you know, the en- energetically, the essence of us is still going to be around, but definitely, it's the leaving people behind. And I, I expect that a lot of your listeners will relate to that. How painful those conversations are because of ultimately, what's going to happen is that that person's going to leave you. That you, they're going to die. Yeah,
0: and and like you say, it's death death is very natural.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: you know, I remember doing a an exercise with David Kessler yeah. and where we had to visualize death itself and, and what we'd say to it. And I've always very much feared death, um, but actually through doing this exercise that I did with David Kessler, I actually realized it wasn't death itself. <laughs> I was scared of like you say it's it's the leaving behind of the Mm -hmm. people that you love and you you know I'm 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 not in a position where I, I I'm facing that knowingly um but it it is it was that real overwhelming feeling when I did this exercise of do you know what death actually we all we're all going to do that I'm not scared of that itself I feel like actually that my belief is that death is quite a peaceful experience, and it not might mm. not be what we observe. You know, when somebody dies, death, and ha- you know, being a nurse myself historically, um, and and seeing people die, what we sometimes see can look quite traumatic, can't it? Yeah. And it, it can look, and and it sounds not how you expect it to sound. It doesn't look how you expect it to look, like it's sometimes portrayed in in, in TV and and stuff. Yeah, but you know. So, yes it can be traumatic absolutely i'm not saying it isn't ever but sometimes i think what's experienced by the person dying isn't necessarily what we observe yeah watching yeah. that person die and 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 it can feel like it's quite traumatic but it's i feel mm-hmm. sometimes for the person themselves dying um like you say the body knows how to do it yeah and i know
1: we we've spoken about some some of this previously um I mean, when, when somebody is dying and you you can often hear what we know as the death rattle all the secretions in the back of the throat. And it sounds awful when you're keeping a bedside vigil and that goes on for hours and hours and days for some mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And so medically, we can dry those secretions up so it's less traumatic for the family. But for the patient themselves, they're not aware. The reason why that's not distressing to the patient is because they are so deeply unconscious by that time that they're not even feeling anything in their throat. If you, if you get something in your throat, you've got to, you, you're got you clearing your throat, aren't you? Mm. The minute and you're, you're sort of coughing and spluttering. Mm. But you can see when somebody has what they, all that collection of secretions in the back of their throat, if they're not clearing them, it's not bothering them Mm. so take comfort from that it sounds worse than it actually is
0: yeah and I think sometimes our perception of of what death is going to look Mm. like and the reality of it can can be traumatic for for people it it, it is traumatic but you, you know to go back to your point I think that that saying goodbye to those that you love and how they're going to be after you've gone, it's horrible. You you know, especially as, as a as a parent um, with yeah. with children and like you say with grandchildren, it's it's that feeling. And there's there's a you know I, that part of you that kind of goes. Well, I want them to to go on and be okay. But the reality is, you know that it's going it is going to be hard. Because like you say, yeah. it's the price you pay for love, and we have yeah. to go through that grieving process um it's it's natural and it's necessary isn't it to to our our human lived experience but when you think about you know when your time comes and you know your husband your son and your mum when you you think of them after you do you do you kind of think about how best they can honor you and you know what you wanted to teach because I very much talk to my clients about honoring your person honoring your own mm-hmm. life being the best parts of your person taking forward the lessons the values the beliefs of your person you know to feel like what they taught you yeah. it can be taken forward with you to, to keep them alive like you you know to kind of honor that that life and and that love and for you what what lessons, what values, what beliefs, what what way would you love your people to, to honor you when your time comes?
1: Oh, I definitely think um, keep life simple. Um, if things become stressful in life because of work or any other situation, Try, if you can, to leave that behind and live life very simply and to find joy in the simple things because actually that's what matters. It's not grand Mm. um, gestures. um, It's not about visiting far-flung countries. It's about noticing what's on your doorstep. It's Mm. about seeing rainbows. It's about looking at the the sky at night and seeing the moon um how amazing it looks and the stars finding joy in the simple things in life the seasons and to know that that this it will it will get better the grief will get better and to find something in life to be grateful for each day think don't dwell on all the negative stuff try to think of something there's always negative stuff but try to find something that you can be grateful for. And yeah, be kind. One of the the biggest things I think is that serving others and being kind to others and doing other things for other people is very healing for yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like them to carry on the work that I've been doing, raising awareness with ovarian cancer and about, um, I'm quite the activist, i've always been the same um mainly about protecting animals and um cuz i was part of the badger group for a long long time um and i've worked in wildlife rescue as well so i whatever it might be but finding some joy in giving to others is is very important and protecting those that are vulnerable mm.
0: do you know what i just I feel like everything that you say there is, is, is something that I've learned in my grief for mm-hmm. sure. And, you know, before Simon died, I probably was quite hung up on the big things and visiting the far flung countries and, and, yeah. and, you know, all these, I don't know, external things, I suppose that we believe brings us joy, but actually I think a lot of what my grief has taught me is really finding peace joy in in the now in in nature in the things around us in simplicity you know and Mm -hmm. you know just seeing the birds watching you know things come alive at spring sitting somewhere with a with a lovely cup of coffee being by water Mm -hmm. slowing down breathing looking for the good in the world you know really and, and when I talk about joy, a lot of people, you can almost see them like joy, joy, I'm, gr- I'm grieving. Huh? And mm. we see joy as this, this really heightened state of happiness, like dancing on tables and living our best <laughs> life. For me, joy is just really finding that contentment, that peace, that love, that harmony with the world where you can look around, see the good mm. in nature, in the sky, yeah just it really is so nurturing isn't it so nurturing and you can I can be like sat it. outside
1: can't you mm. you know having a cup of tea and and feeling mm. very very sorrowful and, and grief stricken tears mm. running down your face for whatever reason but then you know suddenly you can notice a, a robin just hop onto the the grass beside you
0: yeah
1: and that mm. it, that moment just brings you out of that grief just momentarily. and those sorts of things that are what what matters. And yes, okay, you you might then feel start, go back to feeling upset and and grief-stricken. but for that moment in time, you you forgot about that, you saw the joy, mm-hmm. and those small moments of joy will grow in length over time mm-hmm. and to have that trust that it will do.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's hard, isn't it? In the beginning, you know, when you're in that grief, that, that raw grief to feel that, and it must certainly be the same for you. But I think you have, you do have such a huge heart and a a wonderful outlook. And I think your ability to, to see the good and to find gratitude um, gives you that, that hope, that courage Mm -hmm. That ability to face what you're going through and to know that the people that you love around you, yes, they're going to be hurting, yes, it's going to be painful, but you know that they will be okay in time mm. and that, that love that they have for you will give them so much you, you know having you know shared their lives with you and and yeah. who you are as a person has enriched them and and shaped them and and that truly is a a, a wonderful gift yeah. but like you say the pain the pain is still inevitable
1: That's what I'm finding your podcast really helpful to oh. to listen to because it's reassuring um, It's it's giving me hope for Simon and my loved ones. I know I've been through grief myself, but I haven't lost my husband. You know, my husband hasn't died. This is some this is new territory for me. And in all my experience um, over the years in nursing, my my experience of bereavement is very much from a personal point of view, because we do a one off bereavement visit, but we wouldn't see people months or years afterwards. Mm. I don't I've not experienced that, you know, from a a spouse point of view. Mm. Um, I've lost other, I've had other close bereavements and I know how I've coped and I and I've been devastated and I, you know, it took me a long time to get over it. But your podcast, what it's doing is listening to other widows or widowers talking about losing their person it's just helping helping me to be able to help Simon Mm. so I should get him to listen to your podcast I think it might be a bit too painful for him yeah
0: maybe afterwards but yeah Yeah. I think for him you know you're again it's coming from the different angles you're wanting to to know how he's going to be afterwards to 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 give you that reassurance that hope I guess and that 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 knowing but for him he's he's probably not he's not there yet is he he, he no. just wants to be here with you um understandably you know and it's about enjoying that time together as much as you can isn't it and yes yeah. being realistic and opening having the conversations about what's coming but also still what you know like you say you are still here you are still alive and you are still able to enjoy each other in the best way that you can and it's yeah. it's, it's it's trying not to let and I say this to, to clients, you know, not let the death overshadow the life. And I guess it works in, in your, you know, situation as well, doesn't it? Of, of yeah. kind of, you know, we've got to face it and, and at some point it become a reality, but let's yeah. try and live whilst we're, yeah. we're still able to live. But Diane, your, your story is incredible. And, you know, mm-hmm. I genuinely, I'm I'm so sorry that we have to have this conversation. You're going through what you're going through. But I think what you're doing is absolutely amazing that the support and the strength and the wisdom that you share with others I can't even begin to imagine what you're offering people because I know what it means to be around others that are going through something similar to you and you're creating that space for people facing what you're facing and to be able to share that that together um, we are stronger together aren't we yeah know?
1: definitely
0: we, yeah. we all are and I think to find you know your your tribe for people don't yeah. always like that expression but people that you know get it it's that mm-hmm. that sign as much as you and I can have this conversation I'm not living your experience and I, mm-hmm. I can't fully understand it um
1: but Aww. to be around people that well do. thank you so much though for, for your kind words and i found my tribe as well you know and the, the ovarian cancer community were a strong bunch and yes. we pick each other up but
0: that's
1: it. i'm just very grateful to you for the opportunity to to be able to speak so openly about something that's so important
0: it is Um, it is and thank thank you you. thank you for doing it diane it's been such a wonderful conversation and thank you you. just appreciate your your time and your energy i really do so thank you Thank you so much for listening today on The Widow Podcast. If you would like to find out more about how I can help you, please visit my website, www.karensutton.co.uk. I would love to help you find your way forward to a brighter future. So get in touch. Let's have a conversation and let's help you take back control and find a more positive way through your grief.